Welcome to the Covenant Podcast. The Covenant Podcast exists to equip listeners with theological content from a 1689 Baptist perspective. We're on the Man of God Network brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. And in this conversation, we have the privilege to speak with Pat Abendraw. Welcome to the podcast, Pat. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. I'm maybe a little offended by the rock and roll music. But other than that, I'm glad to be with you guys. <laughs> we we do not mean to bring any offense to you with the rock and roll music. <laughs> Our sincerest apologies. Oh, um, I love it. I love it. It makes me smile. So I appreciate that. Uh, it's, it's good to talk with you. And uh, we're excited to have a conversation today. Uh, about a book that you have written. I don't know if our audience can see it if they're watching, titled Covenant Theology, a good title. Um, and that's not, the very, rigid, title not very original, right? <laughs> yeah, very original, very original. <laughs> but uh, you've never been on before, and so we want our audience to know a little bit about you. So can you begin our conversation uh, for this episode by introducing yourself? You bet. First of all, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. I'm thankful for what you guys do. Um, again, my name is Pat Abendroth. Uh, before the show started, we were joking. It should be Abendroth, but because of a family feud, um, a couple generations ago, my great-great-grandmother, I think, said from this day forward, it will be Abendroth. So it's proof of, uh, I don't know, depravity. The Abendroth say it the wrong way. So it means red sun. It means evening sun from German. Uh, and so that would be easier if it was just Pat Red Sun or evening sun. But Abendroth, uh, very German. I think it's a Jewish name, probably. Uh, religious Jews, I'm told in Germany, when they were forced to take last names, something like that, they uh, took names like, you know, Davidson, something biblical. But the pagan Jews, apparently like my ancestors, chose nature names. And so anyway, there's a little bit about the name, more than your listeners want to know. Uh, I pastored in Omaha, Nebraska. I've been at Omaha Bible Church since 1998. And so I'm celebrating 25 years this this month in October when we're recording. Super thankful for that, for the Lord's grace and mercy. Uh, wonderful church, wonderful church family and leaders. I've been married to Molly since 1991. And we've got five children, three adults out of the home, two still in the home in high school. And since they're in high school and they have driver's licenses, they're not home very often, I'll have to say. Uh, again, wrote the book, uh, Covenant Theology, not too long ago, which we're talking about. I'm so happy about that. I host a podcast called The Pactum, uh, which has really taken off in the last couple of years. And so super busy with that, enjoying the fruit, very thankful. We just finished our first Pactum conference and we had people from all around the country come. And uh, it's encouraging to hear and engage with so many people like you guys. Just we have a commonality in understanding the scripture from a covenantal perspective. And it's a great blessing. So again, thanks for having me on. Pat, the joy is ours to have you on. Thank you so much for joining us on the Covenant podcast to talk about your book on covenant theology. I think the name is very fitting for uh, the name of our podcast. So well done on the title. But, and there's uh, right. Can you, translate, can you translate pactum for us, brother? Sure. So pactum means covenant. So that, that works for us. So in Absolutely. light of the pactum salutis, that actually helps people, right? A pact, a covenant, uh, a formal agreement. So we're already off and running explaining things. So Absolutely. And, and uh, as we transition further into some uh, key explanations, maybe the explanation of the, the backstory behind the writing of this book, it 
It shows in your introductory pages that this book was originally composed as a project that you submitted for your doctor of ministry degree. Um, so maybe share a little bit about what your thought process was to really study covenant theology at such an in-depth level to do a doctor of ministry project on the subject and uh, what ultimately led you to turn that project in to the book format that we have today. Sure. Appreciate that, Dewey. So I did a D-min, a doctorate of ministry at the Ligonier Academy, and it no longer exists. Now there's Reformation Bible College. But for a short time, when Ligonier introduced the D-min program, uh, I hadn't intended on doing a D-min. But with RC, you know, being the godfather of reformed evangelicalism that he is, I think he asked, you know, so many different authors from different places to be adjunct faculty that it was it was too good to pass up. You know, classes from Sinclair Ferguson and Michael Horton and Dennis Johnson and R.C. Sproul. I mean, it was like the who's who of, you know, I'll call it reformed evangelicalism and just had a wonderful experience, a great time there. Um, and so when it came time to the, you know, getting close to the end, what should your project be? Uh, I chose covenant theology uh, because really because of justification. And because that's been a, ever since I've been a Christian, it's been of interest to me, uh, this matter of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone, and watching the different crises happen. You know, even when I was in seminary, the evangelicals and Catholics together thing, I think that was in 1994, where R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur and Michael Horton and others, you know, had kind of a showdown with J.I. Packer and Chuck Colson over whether or not we can call Roman Catholics brothers and sisters in Christ, even though we disagree on the gospel. And that really got my attention just to study more, to learn more, uh, to see how important justification is. And then, you know, you, you do your deep dive and you figure out pretty quickly that what upholds sola fide justification uh, through faith alone in Christ alone would be imputation. And so you have to have the crediting of Christ's righteousness under that. And then if you do the, you know, go down the rabbit hole and you really want to figure out what upholds everything, it would be Christ's obedience, Christ's obedience to the law of God, fulfilling the obligation for humanity. And before you know it, you know, uh, you, you wake up in the middle of the night, you know, saying covenant theology, covenant theology, covenant theology, <laughs> which is my silly way of saying, I think covenant, the classic covenant theology ends up giving us the answers, uh, the backbone, the support uh, for sola fide and, and really then the gospel. And so I wanted to write on that topic because uh, if we don't have it, if we don't have uh, covenant theology, I don't think we really have a good support for sola fide and therefore the gospel. And uh, so many people that I knew uh, didn't believe in covenant theology. Thankfully, they believed in sola fide, but they didn't believe in covenant theology. I come from, you know, kind of a dispensational background. Uh, we can talk more about that if you want. But oftentimes people either don't know what covenant theology really is, or they don't like it. They've never heard it before. And if they have, maybe it's the boogeyman. And so I wanted to say, okay, listen, let's look at the Bible and not, not argue primarily from history or historical theology, even though I go there uh, secondarily for support. Let's look at text after text to see that this thing we call covenant theology is scriptural. It is biblical. There's biblical evidence and support. And then we can have a, a stronger foundation for this thing that we love, uh, 
this thing that Luther said is the doctrine upon which the church stands are false. So there's a whole mouthful uh, to give you a, a, an answer to your question. Surely you have more questions regarding it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we could have a ton of places we could go from that. Perhaps we could talk about uh, either your dispensational background and how you got to covenant theology or um, other sure. other roads. But um, you brought up the importance of covenant theology. And one of the questions that we had scripted that we wanted to bring up that I think you have transitioned us well now to talk about is the subject of covenant theology itself. What is covenant <laughs> theology? Why should Bible readers utilize the covenants of scripture? You've talked about your burden to attach sola fide to covenant theology. I, mm -hmm. I really liked your illustration, waking up in the middle of the night, covenant theology, covenant <laughs> theology, covenant theology. But uh, for our audience, I would guess that a lot of our audience is familiar, but perhaps not. What is covenant theology? So I would say covenant theology uh, with a, a bit of a smile on my face, because I know it'll be, you know, it's provocative. I think it's a divinely inspired way of understanding human history as well as biblical history. And I say that, that it's a divinely inspired way because of Romans 5. In, in Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul, last time I checked, he's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. You know, he's looking at all of human history, uh, not to mention biblical history. And he sees uh, this through the lens of the two Adams, the two representatives, the two federal representatives. Federal, you know, means covenant. And he says in Romans 5.18, therefore, as one trespass, led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And I think we have covenant theology there. You have federal representation and it's through the first Adam violating the obligation violating the covenant um, between himself and God, it leads the human race into a state of condemnation, not rest, not justification. And yet through the last Adam, according to 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is the last Adam, the second Adam. His obedience leads to our state of justification. And so my simple answer, answer would be covenant theology is federal theology. It's representative theology. And it's the way that God has chosen to work uh, and relate to the human race. I guess I should back up and say, I think covenant means formal agreement. It means pact. It means sometimes we might say treaty. But for listeners who are new to the discussion, uh, I like to keep it pretty lean and say, okay, well, well, how do we define it? It's a pact. It's an agreement. And by agreement, I don't mean both sides are peers, but there is a, and it's a formal agreement. Um, and if you keep covenant, if you obey uh, the agreement, they'll, it'll lead to blessing. And if you disobey, it'll lead to cursing. There are sanctions, in other words. I think everyone understands covenants, even though we don't use it on a daily basis. Uh, I live in a neighborhood that has covenants. I can't paint my house purple, praise the Lord, uh, or that would be a violation of my contract, a violation of my covenant. Uh, and there would be um, consequences if I, if I broke the covenant. The Bible refers to marriage as a covenant. And so um, we understand that if I, even weddings, you think about how covenantal weddings are. We exchange vows, right? We're, we're swearing, we're taking oaths. There are witnesses that adds to the formality of the whole thing. 
there's we exchange tokens representing our our commitments before god and witnesses very covenantal and adam was in a covenantal relationship with god it would have led to rest and blessing and justification if he would have obeyed but it didn't as we know unfortunately uh, we might say for our for our sakes but ultimately christ is our champion federal head he leads all who would ever believe into justification and rest. And so you find that it's so practical to be able to say, I know what the whole Bible is ultimately about, even though there are a lot of contours, I know that it's ultimately about uh, this, this covenantal reality. No, it's very well said, uh, Dr. Aben Duroth. And um, I think that you'd be encouraged to know that the definition you gave for covenant uh, it's one that I've heard Sam Renahan give. I think even Tom Schreiner has given a similar definition to that as well. So um, for those who are new to covenant theology, I think your definition, um, it's its not just understandable, but it's its also one that's faithful to the text of Scripture, which is hmm. most important. And um, it's a very helpful introduction to uh, what covenant theology is. And you've already you've already gotten into some of the implications regarding the hermeneutical aspects of covenant, how covenant is the backbone of scripture it supports the, the flow of scripture's history of redemption and its progressive outworking through scripture maybe for our listeners now um you can get into some of the uh particulars of the biblical covenants as well as uh something that we wanted to talk to you about today the covenant of redemption covenant of works and covenant of grace we recognize scripture teaching those covenants as well although the terminology is not explicit within mm -hmm. the bible so Maybe touch on uh, the biblical covenant, some of the particulars that you'd like to share, and then also touch on the the biblical basis for affirming uh, the covenant of redemption works in grace that some would say uh, is a theological imposition on the text of Scripture. Yes, yes. Yeah, one objection to covenant theology would be, oh, let me let me even back up and say um, the things we were just talking about, they, they do have to do with, uh, they, they deal with soteriology, they deal with the doctrine of salvation. And just as a footnote, one of the reasons I wanted to write the book is because so many times when people hear covenant theology, they think it's talking about a millennial view or some kind of end times thing or whether or not there's a future for national Israel. And I like to tell people that's actually not even, you know, those, those things are important, but we're, we're dealing with justification. We're dealing with condemnation. We're dealing with soteriological issues. Uh, and if you want to believe that there's a future for na national Israel, that that's fine. That's an important discussion we can have. We can debate it, but regardless, please affirm covenant theology because we're talking about a, a gospel kind of issue. So that's a big reason to, to kind of clear things up, but opponents of covenant theology sometimes say, well, it's not biblical because when you read Genesis, you know, one to three, for example, it, you, you don't find the word covenant. So there's not a covenant of works there. Adam's not in a covenantal relationship with God. And as, as you men know, that's, that's kind of a, I hate to say it, but it's a lame argument because uh, you have the, the components there. Uh, even though you don't have the word there, Adam is not in a casual relationship with God. Adam is not free to do whatever he wants to do. You have all the earmarkings, if you will, of a formal relationship with, with blessings involved and cursings involved. Uh, it's very formal. Uh, even some non-covenantal theologians acknowledge uh, that, that actually you have all the, all the components actually there. 
Uh, and then when we look at other scriptures, we also acknowledge that uh, there are times when the Bible is very explicit. Romans 5 is the classic example. Uh, but even other texts, Hosea chapter 6, verse 7, talks about uh, this very matter. And it talks about Adam and a covenantal relationship. Uh, strangely, um, typically it's been the liberals who've said that's not talking about Adam, it's talking about a place. Uh, but traditionally, when we believe in a historical Adam, we say that's right. When we allow scripture to interpret scripture, Adam was required to obey and he was in a covenantal relationship with God. Uh, and so we have this thing we call the covenant of works, uh, that, that if you do the right thing, it will lead to justification. I'm sympathetic toward people who don't like uh, the covenant of works idea when they first hear it, because don't we love it when people hear works in relationship to salvation and they, they, they get nervous. We commend that as pastors. We commend that as theologians because of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's not works lest anyone should boast, but we forget we're short-sighted. We, we, we need to remember that Jesus did things. Jesus obeyed. Jesus uh, died on a cross. Jesus was raised from the dead. He didn't just show up and do nothing. He did things, and he's the one who fulfills the covenantal obligation for us as the first Adam failed to fulfill that for us. So I think once you're used to labels shorthand. Now, if somebody doesn't know all of the, the verbiage, I'm not going to say covenant of works, but I am going to show them in scripture that there are obligations that are meant to be met and it would lead to good if you keep them, bad if you break them. And before you know it, we can say, oh, there's a label for this. We call it the covenant of works. Covenant of grace would be similar, shorthand. Uh, the only way anyone has ever uh, post-fall related to God in a positive, good way. In other words, the the only way to have a right relationship with God after the fall, to relate positively with God, would be by grace alone, ultimately. And so post-Genesis 3, everyone who relates positively to God, who has a right relationship with God, it's only ever been by grace. It's never been by human sinful uh, creatures works. It's only been by the works of Christ fulfilling the obligation. So it comes to us freely. The shorthand label for that is it's a gracious relationship. It's a covenantal relationship. So that's what I'm getting at when I say covenant of works, covenant of grace. And I think that's really fundamental to covenant theology. Uh, we, we refer to the kind of covenant theology we talk about in my book or that we believe as Protestants. Uh, we, we, we call it bicovenantalism. So you have covenant of works, covenant of grace. There's two fundamental covenants, um, and they're not the same. We don't blur them. When we when we say everything is by works and everything is by grace, uh, I like to call that on the pactum. That's gospel, and that's that's not good. You ruin the law and you ruin, ruin the gospel when you combine them both. They're both crucial. They're both important. But when we blur them, we become something other than Protestant, something other than biblical. And so let's be bi-covenantal. I'm opposed to mono-covenantalism, uh, where we combine both of these things because you're going to end up getting the gospel wrong. You're going to get sola fide wrong. It's going to be justification by faithfulness instead of by uh, grace alone through faith alone and the finished work of Christ alone. And then when we move on, we do say, oh, there is a third in classic covenant theology. We, we do talk about the covenant of redemption as you ask me about it. Um, 
And so we do talk about that, but that's not in contradiction to bicovenantalism. It's just um, something we talk about in the next breath, if you will. And we say that all of these things that have happened by Christ have been according to God's purpose, according to God's decree. We call it the intra-Trinitarian covenant, the intra-Trinitarian pact or agreement. Think Ephesians 1 where you have the Father and you have the Son and you have the Spirit and you have the Father electing and you have the Son redeeming and the Spirit applying. Now, we all know as good Trinitarians, they're all three involved in, in, in all of it, but you see them distinguished, at least in that text. And we call that the covenant of redemption, uh, that, that the elect will be redeemed by the work of the Son, applied by the Spirit according to the decree of God, the eternal God. And this happened, as Ephesians 1 says, before the foundation of the world. It's amazing, absolutely amazing. Uh, and, and they agreed, they covenanted that there's a pact before the foundation of the world that they would do these things. And I don't know about you guys, but that just causes my mind to kind of go, you know, it's, it's no wonder that Paul praises God in Ephesians 1. And, and, and it's that long, long run-on sentence in the Greek text, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us. And he just goes on and on because this stuff induces worship. This is really amazing to think about our great covenantal Lord. Hmm. Amen. Amen. And well said. Uh, thank you for taking the bulk of some of our conversation to talk about these important covenants, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. And I didn't send you this question that I'm about to ask you, but I am not, uh, I don't feel too bad asking it to you because I okay. know that you okay. guys have conversations about this frequently on your podcast. Um, you guys have a lot of conversations on the pactum about the significance of law gospel theology. Yes. And so can you, um, you alluded to this in your last answer, but can mm -hmm. you um, just talk about the importance of building law gospel theology on the foundation of the covenant, covenants of works and covenants of great covenant of grace and um, why it's important to uh connect those two things, law, gospel, theology, and covenant theology. Sure. I, for me, I don't know about you guys, but they just seem to go hand in hand or hand in glove. I don't know which analogy I'm supposed to use. Uh, but when you see the distinction between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, you say, oh, the covenant of works is what God requires, perfect, personal, perpetual obedience. Uh, and it's still intact, even though it was only for Adam, strictly speaking. But you you have it restated and reiterated, you know, even in Luke chapter 10, when Jesus is asked about what to do to gain eternal life, you know, and he says, what do you say? And the guy says, love God with heart, soul, mind and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you've answered correctly, do this and live. And the context is, you know, what should I do to gain eternal life? And Jesus says, do this and live. I think that's a, it's a restatement, if you will, that a, a reiteration that God requires perfect obedience. It's covenant of works-esque, if you will. But it's certainly strict law. It's this is what God requires, and you cannot gain eternal life apart from this. Well, so what you know, what do we do? What we should do is say, Woe is me, I'm undone. Uh, I, I'm desperate, I can't do it myself. I need I need an alien righteousness, I need righteousness from outside of myself. And so that's that should be the right response, uh, but it's not always the always the response. So it needs to come to us freely um, from outside. I think Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 10. Uh, 
So getting back to your question, I, I don't know how to separate. I, typically when people don't get the bicovenantal structure, right? Covenant of works, covenant of grace. It's, it's no wonder that they don't understand the distinction between law and gospel. And I like to emphasize the fact that we are absolutely pro-law. What God requires will always be what he requires. Uh, and we're not saying it's only in the Old Testament. It's in the new Luke chapter 10. It'll always be God's standard but it has to be met by the perfect representative. I love what first John chapter two says, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Oh, the law keeper. He's the one who perfectly keeps the law. He's our perfect federal head. And so that's why we have an advocate with him. So we're, we're told to not sin, but if you do, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous, Jesus Christ, the law keeper, Jesus Christ, the one who fulfilled the obligation. It's how we can have assurance. It's wonderful. So I want to promote law. I just don't want to water it down with gospel. Uh, and that sounds wrong. I, I don't want to, I don't want to make the law something other than it is. Uh, and then I want the gospel to be pure and all of Christ. Uh, and it comes to us freely because I think when you mix the two, you end up ruining both. And now we're back to pre-Reformation, corruption, perversion by the Roman Catholic system, if you will. And I wish more people studied Roman Catholic theology. I wish more Protestants did, because then maybe we wouldn't sound like we weren't Protestant. Uh, we need to see the distinction between these two things. The law gospel distinction isn't only for Lutherans. It's very much for the Reformed and the Reformed tradition, whether we're talking about Reformed Baptist types like Charles Spurgeon, uh, or we're talking about William Perkins, the Puritan. Um, the two go hand in hand, I think. How about you guys? Do you agree? Or do you have to edit this part out of the, the Covenant podcast episode? <laughs> no, I, I completely agree with you, brother. <laughs> I think that you've stated it well. Uh, that our law gospel theology and our uh, covenant theology are hand in glove or hand in hand. Right. Uh, right. Good, good, yeah. good. I'm glad. I want to support the team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we don't want to to conflate law or gospel either. We don't want a gospel. Um, I think we destroy both whenever we mix and confuse the two of those things. And so we're thankful for that term that whether you guys coined or you've popularized, uh, obviously you've had some... Uh, some influence and in people knowing that term gospel. So yeah, let's avoid mixing law and gospel. Good, good, good. I think I was, I heard it from Michael Horton the first time I think, but someone else told me maybe Kim Riddlebarger when he used to be on the white horse and coined it. I'm not sure we've not given him any um, credit on the t-shirt sales that we have, <laughs> <laughs> but I have been oh. told that I, that I should send him a free shirt just in case. Good, good. Well, I'll get us back to the questions that uh, okay, perhaps good. you had some opportunity to prepare for. Uh, in your appendix of your book, you write uh, a part about the problem of biblicism. And I think that's uh, a, a, a thing that a lot of our audience would be interested to hear you speak about. So can you summarize what you're arguing for in this appendix when you talk about the problem of biblicism? Sure. So let's think of me writing this for a particular, you know, it's in that book. It is in the book on covenant theology on purpose, because I think a lot of people who I know who have objected to covenant theology, they've objected because they say, um, you know, we're biblical. You're not getting it from the text of scripture. So oftentimes people say, we don't believe in covenant theology because we're biblicists. So I was, I was 
in particular aiming toward those people, uh, not something that's happened since I wrote the book. But anyhow, I digress. So first of all, uh, when it comes to biblicism, I think there's a good kind of biblicism. Uh, maybe let's call it the CNN type, right? So kind of the leftist media, maybe uh, here's your podcast and we're talking about the substitutionary atonement of Christ and the bodily resurrection of Christ. And they hear us believing the Bible to be true. And they're going to say, oh, those guys on that podcast, they're just biblicists. Well, we would just take that as a badge of honor. We're just being biblical. And uh, so sometimes leftists, if you will, refer to Christians as biblicists. Well, I, I'm not objecting to that. I, I would welcome that kind of biblicism. I think there's another kind of biblicism uh, that's a little bit different. And that would be, you know, when we don't have, um, when we're newer to Christian theology and we're trying to iron out the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism, and we're not really sure where to land, uh, what about the extent of the atonement? We're not really sure. And so we might say, as I've heard people say, I'm not a Calvinist. I'm not an Arminian. Uh, I'm just a Biblicist. And people use it that way. And I don't think that's the best thing to do, but I, I'm sympathetic toward it. When you're trying to figure things out, you try to avoid the label. And so I don't really have a big beef with either one of those per se, but my problem ends up being uh, the kind of Biblicism that says uh, you can't use extra biblical labels. And if you use extra biblical labels, then somehow you're not biblical. They're opposed to, we might call them theological constructs. Uh, you mentioned earlier, you brought up the, we, when we were talking about uh, covenants not used in Genesis, or I brought it up, and we talk about the covenant of works. If you do a word search in the best Bible program on earth and, and search the covenant of works, it won't be there. The covenant of grace won't be there. Uh, the pactum salutis, the covenant of redemption, none of these things will be in, the, in your searches that doesn't mean they aren't biblical. Um, and so I, I'm all for extra biblical labels. I'm all for um, historic confessions. In, in so many ways, I think biblicism, the kind I don't like, is um, a critique of confessionalism, where we write down what we mean by what we think the Bible says, uh, or what we think the what the Bible what we think the Bible means by what it says. Uh, those are confessions. They're not um, of the same authority. They're not inspired. They're not inerrant. Only scripture is, uh, but labels can be helpful. I like to point out the fact that Arius and Athanasius, as they're having their showdown regarding the deity of Christ, Arius, who's the heretic, who who's denying the deity of Christ, Arius is the one who's the biblicist. He's the one insisting that we only use biblical terminology. And Athanasius, you know, our guy, um, the Orthodox guy, he's the one who's inventing extra biblical words uh, as labels to try to figure out who's truly biblical. And so that's a good historic example of, I think Athanasius is, I think Arius is the biblicist and Athanasius is, let's just call him the confessionalist just for our sake of, of conversation. Uh, when you, when you look at Robert Bellarmine, who's the arch rival of Protestants, uh, he's a good sparring partner for us as Protestants, but uh, Bellarmine, who's opposed to justification as we know it, he's the guy who's saying, hey, I'm the one who's using the biblical terminology, the Bible, and this is just me off the top of my head, but paraphrasing, I'm the one who is not finding anything about Christ's righteousness as a lawkeeper imputed to people so that they can be justified by faith alone. 
So we're going to say, hey, the date is in the scripture, but we're just using the labels for shorthand. So I have a problem with biblicism, but again, I think some of us are talking past one another when we we say, oh, biblicism's good or biblicism's bad. Probably depends on what people mean. I will maybe, this is anecdotal, but when I was doing research for my project that became the book Covenant Theology on this topic, knowing that lots of people that come from my back kind of background are, are biblicist in their objection. Uh, I did a, a bunch of searches in my Lagos program, and I don't know how many volumes I have. Uh, my church congregation has been gracious to buy me a really great, you know, version with all kinds of volumes. And most of the hits that came up under biblicist, biblicism, or some kind of version from historical sources always saw it as negative, as bad, not good. Uh, and so, for example, Richard Muller, uh, he says virtually all of the 16th century anti-Trinitarians were biblicists. And so that, that kind of thing gets my attention. And so I think uh, I don't like it when we say if it, the word isn't used, it can't be true. Trinitari when we say Trinity, that's a classic example. When we say hypostatic union, that's a classic example. Uh, so time and time again, I don't think... Um, the labels that that helpful questions for me about any of that kind of stuff yeah i'm gonna jump in on that pat um especially how i love how you closed out that segment talking about the fact that there's no truly consistent biblicist that in the final analysis you're going to have to use extra biblical language to describe what the bible teaches um so and we've done it historically with terms like trinity hypostatic mm -hmm. union substitutionary atonement and so on and so forth um, my follow-up question, though, would be just in your estimation and your experience uh, and, and me being a former dispensationalist, having a similar background that you have had theologically, mm -hmm. how much do you think modernism is really just steeped in the dispensational mentality of, I've got my Bible, um, I, I really am weary or um, I'm suspicious about going to creeds or confessions to formulate my opinions because scripture is sufficient. I, I don't need this, this outside help. And of course, we, we also know that when we talk about the sufficiency of scripture, um, given the definition of sufficiency of scripture violates the whole MO of biblicism. But in any case, how much, how much do you think in our current day, the, the biblicist trend is really steeped in a kind of dispensationalism that pervades much of American evangelicalism because in my personal experience in very sound Bible teaching churches, no less, I've mm -hmm. seen a hesitancy to adopt, for example, covenant of works, covenant of grace. They'll use different terminology. They'll talk about the representative headship of Adam and they'll, they'll describe Adam's, uh, you know, the binding nature of Adam's disobedience on, on his uh, natural descendants and the, binding nature of Christ, obedience on his spiritual descendants, and they'll use all the language and describe all the concepts that, that we would agree to, but they will not use the label covenant of works, covenant of grace, and so on. So how much of, how much, in light of all that, how much of this do you think really is just, is steeped in kind of a modern dispensational understanding of how the Bible fits together and how we should talk about the Bible? Dewey, that is a whole lot going on in that question. I, I like your point and what you said. Whew, I'm going to have to take a big breath to try to even come close to answering. So let's dialogue about it, maybe. Um, <laughs> I think, okay, let, 
first of all, I want to be gracious and say, I understand people not being able to use the labels. How about if, if even if people don't use the labels, at least if you understand the theology, then avoid the hot labels. So keep calling it the federal representation. But guess what? You know, it comes from a Latin word that means covenant. So eventually come around, just use just use the labels, let the chips fall where they may. Um, but literally just today, I was talking to a, a missionary in a different country who believes these things we're talking about from the covenant theology book, classic covenant theology, covenant of works, covenant of grace, covenant of redemption. But he's saying, hey, I, I can't use these labels right now or or I'm, I'm going to get kicked off the mission field. So I just said, you know what? Just keep teaching the Bible, but hold to the concepts. But in time, you're eventually going to probably use the language. Anyhow, so I'm, I'm a bit sympathetic because of the fact that people think that covenant theology is the boogeyman. But when it comes to dispensationalism, again, I'll say, I think you can, if, if dispensationalism is in its essence, a, a belief in a future for national geopolitical Israel, uh, even if I don't hold that view, I might say, okay, fine. You, you can keep, you can keep that view and you can also believe in the covenant of works, covenant of grace, covenant of redemption, because we're talking about soteriology. So I like to say, come on in the water's warm. Uh, my favorite kinds of dispensationalists are the people who believe in covenant theology. Uh, and we can talk about the other issues that are also important. Uh, but first and foremost, let's get justification right. And let's get it uh, strongly. Uh, uh, um, let's have a good foundation for it, which would be covenant theology. So there's that. Uh, but when you look at the history of dispensationalism, when they've been anti-confessional, it's not, it's not gone well. So if we want to talk about Lewis Berry Chafer at Dallas Seminary, who said some good things, I'm thankful that he affirmed a form of the covenant of redemption. Uh, but he, it didn't go well for him when he, he walked away from his confessionalism because those it's good. They're good rails, good safeguards because we're not the first Christians. There have been other Christians before us and there's been good reason they've come to conclusions they've come to. And so when Chafer says things like Jesus was raised for, uh, Christians only, but he was not raised from the dead for Jewish believers, I, that, that that's crazy because if he's raised for justification, then Jewish believers aren't justified. I mean, that's just a major foul. I don't know any dispensationalist who would say that today, and I'm thankful for that. But we, when you try to reinvent the wheel, you just it turns out square. It's not helpful. When John Walvoord would say, because of word studies, uh, there's a difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. I, I don't know of any dispensationalist. I'm sure there are some, but I don't know of any of them who believe that today. Uh, and so when we go back and we try to get rid of our confessions and uh, church history and uh, historical theology, I think we just make too many mistakes. And I think um, those would be examples of such things. Just recently I was reading, I, and I commend it to listeners. I think it's fascinating. Uh, Justin Taylor uh, did his PhD on at Southern Seminary and uh, he wrote it on John Piper. And there's a chapter in there. I've not read the whole thing, but I really enjoyed the chapter on biblicism. And it's the biblicism and Dan Fuller. And Dan Fuller was John Piper's mentor. It's a really interesting chapter about Fuller. Off the top of my head, Fuller's at Princeton. This is post-Machin. And his professor is telling the students to get to move away from the confession. And we just need to study the words of the Bible. And we need to, you know, follow Adler's how to read a book and take the 
pieces apart. And what we need to do is get rid of this human tradition, confessionalism, and just get back to the Bible. And uh, it, it didn't, it didn't end well. It wasn't positive. It wasn't good. Um, and before you know it, you know, Fuller ends up, you know, denying sola fide by the end and it's justification by faith and works. Uh, I don't think biblicism leads to good places. I think the confessions are there to help us not inspired, not inerrant, not with biblical authority, but it would be, you know, as C.S. Lewis said, it's chronological snobbery uh, to, to not pay attention to the spirit's work in the past. And it's probably for good reason uh, that they say things the way that they do. So I hope that helps. Um, I don't know if I answered your question or not, Dewey. <laughs> no, that was very helpful. And I know that was not part of our pre-scripted questions, but I figured if Austin was going to go off script, then I could go <laughs> off script at least once as well. So um, Okay, good, good. Yeah, really thoughtful insights there, brother. So grateful for uh, your feedback, for that add-on question, as well as for everything that we've been discussing up to this point today. And as we seek to wrap up our conversation about your book, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with either regarding covenant theology as a whole or the book or anything else relevant to our discussion? Sure. Well, one thing that came to mind regarding your question that I didn't ask answer because you brought up modernism, you know, it used to be the traditional perspective would be that Christians interpret scripture with scripture. And we have, we emphasize one divine author. Sure. Paul's vocabulary is different than Peter's than John's. Um, there are lots of contours in scripture, but, um, we have interpreted scripture with scripture. And so one divine author has helped us to do that. And, um, post, you know, post enlightenment where we, we deny things like divine author, then we only focus on the human author and we're not allowed to go to Hosea six to better understand Genesis one to three, for example. Well, that's not been the Christian way to do it. That's, that's, that's a, that's an unbelieving way to do it. And I think too many times evangelicals, dispensationalists, other kinds, the kinds that don't like covenant theology um, are, are not sounding like uh, conservative Bible believing historic Christians were sounding more like post enlightenment liberals. And so I say, let's interpret scripture with scripture thoughtfully. And I think before you know it, we'll say, Oh, this sounds like covenant theology. This sounds like the covenant of works, the covenant of grace and the covenant of redemption. And now the Bible, this huge book with so many contours and so many verses is still challenging but it's so much easier to read and understand if we go back to Romans five and the, the lenses, the inspired lenses that the apostle Paul gives us. I think people will be blessed. People will be encouraged. People will have assurance like they haven't had assurance. Um, I, I think it'll be really wonderful to see. And I think more and more people are seeing it, which is exciting. Very well said, brother. We've been talking with Dr. Pat Abendroth about his book, Covenant Theology. And uh, Dr. Abendroth, thank you so much for your labors with this book. Thank you for your labors for advancing God's kingdom in the Midwest. It's really been a delight to have you on the show today. And we trust that many of our listeners will be blessed by all that we've talked about. It's been my honor. Thank you. Thank you for what you guys are doing. I really appreciate it. May the Lord bless you. Thank you, brother. And to our listeners, we do want to say thank you for your continued support of the Covenant Podcast. And until next time, we wish you grace and peace. God bless.